do you want them to go away and try something? Do you mm -hmm. want them to look something up on the internet afterwards? Do you want them to launch an experiment in their lives? Do you, like, what do you want them to do? And you get that if you approach an opportunity to speak to people as an opportunity to invite them to do something, suddenly your speech takes on a totally different character. Our ever-changing world calls upon the most courageous, resilient, and relentless of us to face its most extraordinary challenges. To help you embark on this journey, we present the Impactful Coaching Podcast, your oasis for inspiration and a beacon to spark the fires of greatness within you. I'm Joseph. I will be your ally in this journey to empower your potential. Join us each week as we dive deep into the heart of ambition, drive, and success to unravel compelling stories of daring leaders who dreamed, struggled, and achieved victory. Our journey begins now. How's everybody doing? This is the Impactful Coaching Podcast. My name is Joseph, and if this is your first time joining us on the program, thank you for being here. We're going to do the best we can to make this hour worth your while. I've been in web media for 10 years, and my vocation these days is to help professionals like you understand and use web media to the best of your ability. So find me on LinkedIn. All right, that's enough of that. I'm here today with Cole Fink of ColeFink.com. Um, before I get to question one or question zero or just, just question negative one is how's, I mean, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Thanks for being on the program. Thanks very much, Joseph. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. It's an interesting morning for me because I'm solo parenting. So I have a couple of kids in the next room. And, uh, and they're all set up with bananas and, uh, and the TV show Bluey, which is one of Australia's great cultural exports right now. And uh, so I'm, but I'm really excited to be here chatting with you and I'm hoping that they can keep themselves entertained while we talk. <laughs> well, for those of you who see like a gradual change in like my, in my beard, our beards, uh, that's because there is a time <laughs> jump and we picked up like the next day or something like that. So <laughs> Exactly. I am sitting in the future for you right now. I think I'm somewhere between 19 and 23 hours ahead, depending on daylight savings and various other things. It's, yeah, it was nice when I took a flight from uh, Ontario to Alberta and it was two hours behind and I thought, oh, so this is what time travel feels like. This is nice. <laughs> totally. My favorite is when you travel and land before you took off, mm -hmm. uh, which yeah, is yeah. possible if you leave mm -hmm. from where I live in Melbourne and fly to like LA or Dallas or somewhere like that. You can actually land before you left. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I guess it's called like sun chasing or moon chasing where you're just trying to like catch the moon before it goes off under the under the horizon totally and i heard there were people when the uh when the turn of the millennium happened apparently there were people who were obviously had fairly deep pockets but they flew planes to cross the um the change from 1999 to 2000 so they did new year's eve three times <laughs> because you know it's the turn of the millennium you may as well party hard I, I remember and I and I realize that we're just bantering, but you know, let's have let's have some fun here, people. But I remember how much of a warning the news media at the time put out that the computers weren't gonna understand what was gonna happen and everything was gonna shut down. So these people took like high risk, high reward, where they were in a plane when all of this could have happened. And that plane <laughs> didn't gamble once, but gambled like multiple times on multiple computers shutting down. And then just I remember actually being disappointed by the way that the power didn't go out for a little while because there's some things that you can't talk a family into doing until the power's out, like board games and connecting. So I was really hoping that yeah. the power would be out for at least like a day or so. <laughs> Totally. I also feel like the whole Y2K bug thing was a, a good uh, litmus test for someone's likelihood to tend towards conspiratorial thinking or whatever. Because some people say, well, the Y2K bug, nothing ever happened. So it was all a big hoax from the beginning. And other people say, well, 
we paid a lot of attention to the Y2K bug and tens of thousands of computer scientists spent millions of hours resolving it and that's why nothing happened. And I guess you're, <laughs> everyone has a different opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, my opinion was uh, looking forward to it. So I'm in a very small group of people who probably don't want to be referred to in the future. All right, <clears throat> got that one out of my system. Now you've uh, probably done a podcast or two, 100,000. I don't know. Some people, they're like, they, it's like the, they've done one or two. Some people have done like hundreds of thousands. Um, it's, it, it's an impressive feat. And some questions, they just got to be asked. And this is one of those. Would you care to tell the audience what you do and what you're up to these days? I'd love to. Uh, so I am extremely enthusiastic about solopreneurialism. Uh, so obviously you can be an intrapreneur who joins a business and you can be an entrepreneur who starts a business and you can be a solopreneur who is a business. And I'm not good at delegation. I'm terrible at management. There's a variety of things about me which make me really well suited to entrepreneurialism and creating things. But there's these aspects of me that are not in any way conducive to running a successful business in a kind of hierarchical and structured sense. That's just not naturally my thing. And so I found a really useful niche in being a solopreneur, in running a solo business where my intellect, my energy, my enthusiasm are kind of the source of value in the business. Uh, so I've done really well uh, coaching, mentoring, public speaking, running training programs, all that kind of thing. And so I've written a couple of books about the topics uh, where my solopreneurialism has taken me, which is typically, so public speaking is one. I've written a book called Speakership with my friends, Matt Church and Sasha Coburn. And I've also written a book about engagement. Uh, it's called Tribe of Learning, and it's for people who either uh, run a business and they have a group of people who they're working with, so they're staff, basically. Um, and how do you engage your staff and keep them deeply engaged and, uh, and invested into what you're doing at work? Um, and also, uh, you can think of your tribe as your clients and how do you get, keep them deeply engaged and invested in your business. So I've written those two books and I've done a lot of consulting and speaking on those topics. And actually, it's one of those things where when you're doing something well, people start to reach out to you and ask, hey, Cole, I've noticed you've seemed to be doing quite well for yourself, but you just mm -hmm. work alone. How do you make that work? And so now really probably the greater focus of my solo business is helping other solo business owners. Uh, and so I'm presently writing my third, third book. It's called The Solo Pro. Um, and essentially it's a book for people who want to run a solo business uh, in some kind of professional space. So generally selling to other businesses, other organizations. Um, and I'm really enthusiastic about how we can use uh, essentially just the, the intellect, the experience, the expertise, the knowledge that you've collected over a lifetime in all these different fields and how you can apply that in a way that gives you an opportunity to make money meaningfully and freedomfully. <laughs> uh, so I never thrived in a kind of corporate setting. I, I tried it for quite a short period of time, it must be said. Mm -hmm. And freedom and autonomy are just really central values to who I am as a person. And I believe in the capacity of capitalism to set us free, but I think that we have to we have to work the system in ways that is beneficial to us. And I think a lot of organizations are structured to work the system in a way that's beneficial to them, not to the people that work for them. My mission is to help people work a thousand hours a year or less at an average of $500 a year or more. 
Uh, and the idea being, if you do the maths, a thousand hours a year is like 20 hours a week mm-hmm. and taking two whole months of the year off. And for me, that's a really healthy amount of time to spend working. That's how much time I've spent working for the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, and so I'm on a mission to, to help people who are talented and caring and, and smart and impactful to, to mm. find ways of working that allow them to incorporate that kind of freedom into their life because that's what I've enjoyed and I, I think we should all enjoy that. There, there's things that we obviously dis- discussed prior to recording and then there's our pre-planned questions, but I, I want to um, briefly get into a subject because uh, based off the what, what we're talking about here, um, and I thank you for uh, for answering the question so eloquently. So I, I, I sort of exist in two worlds. Um, in in the work in the in the professional world, uh, in the, in the three years that I've uh, niched down into B two B media, uh, I've talked to people in the yeah. e commerce space, talked to people in the web three space, here in the coaching space, and a lot of people are doing really well, and making the kind of money that enables a a healthy, happy, productive lifestyle, but not everybody is like that. I've also talked to a lot of a lot of my, like a lot of my friends, a lot of the people that I see talking on TikTok and on social media, seem to frankly be in despair. Now, I have asked this question before, so it's not a matter of like I, I'm I'm only expecting one person to give me the answer before I never ask it again. I'm just trying to have different people uh, approach it from different points of view. So, what kind of power is in the hands of any average person to? try to elevate themselves to earn the kind of money and develop a lifestyle that um, would be the envy of others. And is there a, a, a limit to how many people can, can make it through? Or is there like a certain amount of people that will be dependent on a system because we sort of require a system to help the masses? I know I'm going, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so no, that's really, a, really, I really, love that yeah, question. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so a few ways I would come at that. I think there are two things uh, that immediately come to mind, one around productivity and one around commerciality. So the productivity one is uh, I'm not like a, I don't know, Gary Vaynerchuk is kind of the poster child for, you know, the grind and the work hard and the really throw yourself at it. I'm not a disciplined person. I'm not a, a I'm not a hard worker, honestly. <laughs> I have many talents and that that isn't one of them. And so I have a an approach to productivity that isn't that I'm going to be more productive by working harder than, than my competitors, right? But I do think that if you're going to make uh, solo business work for you, if you're going to be able to earn the type of freedom that I'm talking about, you do have to be more productive than most people. If you're the kind of person that just wants to sit down, get a little bit done and then, you know, check out and do whatever. Like, honestly, maybe the structure and the security, if you like, of a job is a better option for you. I don't think that the lifestyle that I'm talking about is necessarily for everyone. And by the same token, I don't think that it excludes anyone either. I don't think there's a threshold of intelligence you have to meet. I don't think there's a threshold. I don't think there's any thresholds that you have to meet in order to like earn the right to be able to do this. And it's not for everyone, and that's it, but it's more to do with the choices you wanna make rather than any inherent thing about you, right? So you do have to find ways of being productive. And in my worldview, what that means is you have to find ways of creating things that energize you. And so a lot of people find aspects of running business uh, like an energy drain. So they find it hard to market themselves, they find it hard to sell themselves, they ha- find it hard to produce various things, and they find it draining. Uh, 
my philosophy is basically that you've got to identify the parts of your business that need to happen and then you've got to find ways of making that stuff happen that you actually enjoy doing and that energize you to do them. Because if you find a way to market your business that energizes you, well, then you'll never stop marketing because you're having fun. Mm -hmm. If you find a way to sell your services that energizes you, well, then you'll never stop selling because you're having a good time. If marketing, sales, or any of the aspects of business, administration or anything, if it's getting you down and it drains your energy, like you'll soon find that you don't have energy and that's when you'll stop. And so if you want to make solopreneurialism work, to my mind, the, the price of entry is to learn to play the energy game. Like, Joseph, if I asked you, mm. would you get more done if you had limitless energy but very little time? Or would you get more done if you had unlimited time but very little energy? Which would you say? You know, I usually do bad when I'm, when I'm giving these questions, but I think I can get this one. I think if you didn't have a lot of time but you had a lot of energy you would be able to make the little time you have count. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, like, and I really feel for people who have conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome and stuff like that, where they have all the time in the world and no energy to do anything. One of my friends has had that for about 20 years, and it's heartbreaking to see it because he's incredibly intelligent, incredibly capable, uh, and he's just been struck down by this total lack of energy, and he can't get anything done. On the other hand, I have three kids, four years old and younger, I've got like enough things to worry about. I've got very little time, but I've been lucky enough to find a way to do all the things that I need to do in my work that are energizing. And so I'm a highly energetic person. Mm -hmm. And therefore I find that I can, I, I can always get done what I need to get done. So the first answer to your question is, if you're gonna make this work, you've gotta to learn to play the energy game and you've gotta be willing to experiment. You've gotta be willing to do things differently to the status quo you're not necessarily going to get told by some douche bro on the internet how to get something done. You might have to find your own path, but you have to learn to play the energy game and learn how to do all the things you need to do in ways that are energizing for you. The second part, and this bit is key, and this bit I think has a lot of fear and kind of weird psychological hangups for a lot of people, is openly and kind of wholeheartedly taking responsibility for the commercial side of your business. So the number one mistake that I see people make who want to succeed in solo business is their business plan amounts to, I'm going to be really good at what I do and then hope the people I do it for tell other people. <laughs> I'm going to hope that word of mouth spreads the word about my business and gets me enough new clients because if that doesn't work, I don't have a plan B. Mm -hmm. That rarely is enough. You have to be absurdly talented and absurdly good at what you do for word of mouth to be your primary marketing strategy when you get started. Now, it can be the perfect marketing strategy once you're well established. So if you're Adam Grant or Brene Brown or someone like that, word of mouth is going to get you all the work you ever need. But you get that they're already really well positioned. They're already very high profile. They're already very well established. When you're starting out a solo business, you've got to take responsibility for the commercial side of it. And because money's weird and everybody's weird about money, mm -hmm. the number one mistake I see people make is they, they allow their fear of the commercial side of it to just create a total rejection and they try to ignore it. It doesn't work. You've got to find a way 
to effectively market your business. You've got to find a way to effectively sell your services and connecting it back to point one, you've got to find a way to do that that you like doing. I'm currently on a podcast with you. Whether this works or not, whether I get another client, like I'm marketing right now in a sense, and whether it works or not doesn't matter because I'm having a good time. This is a, a lovely way for me to spend my morning and I'm going to do another podcast next week whether this one's effective or not. And so I can keep doing interviews like this and it's, it's energizing enough for me that, I'm, that it's going to keep happening. Do you know what I mean? So appearing on podcasts is one thing. There's obviously social media. There's speaking at conferences. There's all these different ways that you can expose yourself to new people who you can turn from strangers into neighbors. Do you know what I mean? Get them into mm -hmm. your orbit. You have to take responsibility for that. And if you're going to succeed at solo business, I would say until you're willing to make that choice. And the day you're willing to take responsibility for the commercial aspect of your business, as well as the delivery side of things, that's the day you're ready to go. I, I just wanted to say, just um, having been a, a B2B podcast host for the last three years, the ability to receive a lot of this information has really been an experience like no other. And it's pretty cool too that, you know, I'm on the clock for it. So I get, I'm getting the best of both worlds. As far as like, <laughs> you know, what, what really energizes me and, and I wanted to, to dial into the subject a little bit because energy i don't think all energy is made the same sure. I, some people i haven't mentioned this in every episode because this isn't about me but the um my sort of like the main thing that i'm working towards in the long term is to um become a a, a writer and so i'm working on a novel and i gotta tell you i love working on my story it absolutely fills me with the energy that you're talking about because I, yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm a director, but I'm also in the, in the character's head. So I'm an actor too. And a lot of my, my game experience comes out too. So I'm really good at setting up scenes and setting up combat in a way that is entertaining to read. So everything that I have, I have gotten good at is manifesting in, in different ways. So I, I love doing it. I, re I really do. And that's a good form of energy. But I do think that there there can be negative forms of energy too if the energy is coming from a place of fearfulness, if it's coming from a place of anxiety, and it's compelling people to act in a way that might get things done productively, but it, it doesn't seem to work well in, in the long term, and it can lead to mental health issues. Totally. So have you, maybe it's been a personal issue with you, maybe it's been with clients that you've worked with, but have you seen a misuse of energy or, or people relying on maybe the wrong kind of energy? Hearing you describe it that way evoked for me, um, there's a guy called uh, Dr. David Hawkins and he wrote a book, Power Versus Force. Don't know if you've read that one. Power but, Versus Force. Um, it's funny, I don't agree with the scientific methodology with a lot of what he says. Mm -hmm. so, so I disagree with the method that he came to the conclusion, but the conclusion he reached actually resonates quite deeply with me. And the idea is this. There's a line that exists uh, in in your world and you can be above the line or below the line which is kind of a metaphorical thing and I don't even have to explain what the line is I can just ask you and our listeners these questions and you'll immediately understand what I mean are you above the line or below the line in your relationship with your spouse are you above the line or below the line with relationship to your finances are you above the line or below the line with respect to your work or your study are you above the line or below the line with respect to your nutrition or health or fitness? 
Do you know what I mean? Well, you just know. You, I don't have to tell you where the line is. I don't have to tell you how to measure it. I just ask you, are you above or below the line with respect to this or that? And you instantly, intuitively know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. So to hear you talk about energy then, I was hearing there are above the line ways to harness energy and there are below the line ways to harness energy. And I 100% agree that you can use energy in ways that are below the line and that using energy in that way will tend to fester things like anxiety and depression and yeah, all sorts of kind of negative things that accumulate in the long term to be quite negative. If I could like add a nuance to my recommendation around like you've got to play the energy game, you've got to play the energy game and work out what's above the line for you. And so you might find that you can harness a particularly nervous kind of energy to, I don't know, go and promote yourself through public speaking. But if that's turning you into a wreck (laughs) in the long term, well, then I wouldn't recommend that as being the sustainable path forward. One of the ways that I have navigated this myself, and this is a pretty common piece of advice I would give people while coaching them around their own business, is treat yourself like an experiment. And so rather than, like, I think a lot of um, self-improvement is driven from a place that I would describe as being below the line. So you'll often see this at New Year's resolutions. You know, in 2024, I'm going to go to the gym six days a week. And there's this real, like, disciplined, negative, below-the-line energy about it. Like, you know, I'm telling my future self that they're going to stop being such a shit person. Which, Like, I don't think that's a healthy way to think about yourself. And so I almost never make uh, firm declarations about what I'm going to do or who I'm going to be. And instead, what I recommend is, can you try an experiment? So an experiment might be, I'm going to leave my running shoes, my running shorts and a set of headphones on the front seat of my car every morning when I park at work so that when I get in my car to go home, I've got running shoes, running shorts and a set of headphones. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to find out if I go running three times a week or more when I give myself that little prompt. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or you might say, I'll give you the best experiment I ever ran. I noticed one day that I had a tendency to just sit at my desk, whether I was being productive or not. So I would sit at my desk for eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, no matter what I was actually producing. And I had this epiphany. I was like, I think I might be wasting my time. I don't think this is actually productivity. And so I launched an experiment. The experiment was, if you notice yourself sitting at your desk doing nothing, you're allowed to go outside and ride that unicycle for as long as you want. You don't have to justify it to anyone. You don't, have, you don't have to have a time limit. As soon as you notice you're not being productive, you're allowed to go outside and ride that unicycle for as long as you want. And when you come back in, you can keep working. And even if you sit at the computer for a minute and you notice you're not being productive, you're allowed to stand back up, go outside and ride the unicycle. Two weeks later, I could ride the unicycle. I had spent less than a half of the amount of time at my desk than I had in the two weeks prior. And I had gotten a lot more done. And I thought to myself, oh, (laughs) it turns out productivity for me is not an investment of time. It's an investment of focus and energy and everything else. And that two-week-long experiment turned out to be the genesis of my life as I live it today, where I work at most 20 hours a week. 
because I've realized that it's not about time for me. And in fact, the more time I invest, the less I get done after a while. Now, do you get that if I'd read advice on the internet or on a lot of those, I call them douche bro, but I imagine you know what I mean, those mm -hmm. types of podcasts, those grind core podcasts, I would never have launched this experiment because that's not what they tell you to do. But because I launched it as an experiment, I had a, there was a lightness around being able to try it. And as a result, I discovered something about myself, which has led to an enormous improvement in the quality of my life, the quality of my work, the impact that I have, uh, and the way that I show up in the lives of the people around me. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should live life the way that I do, because I get that we're all unique. But what I am saying is, can you please experiment with different ways of being and working and doing things and just find the ways that work for you rather than getting out your big discipline bat and beating yourself to death with it. <laughs> what, what, what I, I wouldn't say it's problematic, but what I guess doesn't sit with me when we're talking about the, the quote unquote gurus uh, on TikTok and the, the douche pros, as you put it, we're not censored on the program. It just, you know, it doesn't come up all that often. And <laughs> just, you know, just inorganically. So when we see that their their lifestyle entails getting up at 4 a.m. and working all the way through to 3 a.m. and eating like a banana throughout the course of the day, it makes people feel like that there is only one way to succeed when there is there are millions of people all throughout the world who have succeeded in equally a million amount of ways. Like yeah, doctors, surgeons, uh, lawyers, um, transcribers on, on, on Upwork. Like there's a hundred different ways that people can do it. So I, I personally find it, it's hard to even though there's really no reason to emulate their behavior, it just seems like their behavior is the optimal version of uh, how what any human should do. And the reason why I think that is because the the idea, like, say, you take the nine to five uh, work week that it comes across as a as a control method, but if you steel man it it was really a matter of aligning the work week to circadian rhythm. You get up in the morning, the sun is there waiting for you. By the time you get around five o'clock, it, it, maybe it's winter time, the sun's down, or it's it's just about to, to set in, in about an hour. But it, it, it just aligned with the majority of people's sleep patterns, and it led to productivity. So did it turn into a control method? I think so. But the, there does seem to be a a scientific means to have established that in the first place. So that's that's just my take on it. It's just uh, a lot of what, um, how very little uh, they they affect me now on a day to day basis because I've just you know tried to work things out on my own. And frankly, when I try to do other things things another way, it doesn't work anyways. I'm one of those people that actively tried to work in the matrix, wished I could have been part of the system, and the system just keeps like no 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 you get you get the get out of it just get right out. So like I give it a shot, right, an unironic shot, and it didn't work. So all right, fair enough. I really do got to figure it out my own way. And that's what that's what gets me. Is a lot of people are like, man, Joseph. You, you you said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be free. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm like, yeah, because literally nothing else worked. I'm an individual human being with a very specific construct. There had to be only one specific way I was going to work. Yeah, I, I had exactly the same experience. So my first couple of roles um, out of high school and university were in organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I tried the entrepreneur thing. My next thing was I started a business and it was manufacturing and I had a factory and there were people working there and all that kind of stuff. And we turned over lots of money and I don't think I made a dollar of profit. <laughs> uh, and so uh, like I, I had exhausted all options and this idea of being a solo pro that works for myself, that just runs a one-man business, that is a one-man business. 
it was kind of the last thing left on the table that I could try. And thankfully, it, it, I have found ways to make it work for me. But I had exactly the same experience. It wasn't like I set out and designed this from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I have followed, I don't know, the guidance of the universe in kind of telling me, this isn't working for you, dude. Try something else. Uh, and eventually I found a space where I'm now 44 years old and I've never been happier. And my life is not by any means complete, nor is it perfect, mm-hmm. but I, I like to think uh, that I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in the top, I don't know, decile for people who are generally happy and satisfied sure. with how their <laughs> <Yeah>. lives are. <laughs> so, so here's what I'd like to do. I do have to ask you something about the solopreneur. So that's uh, on deck. But what I've been yeah. doing on the program, somewhat for fun, but I think it's an interesting thought experiment, is to ask guests to define something for us. So cool. in, in the past, I've asked people to define anxiety. I've asked people to... Um, uh, identify addiction depends on the episode right so sure. in 2023 webster contacts you and says cole we need you to define energy for us what have you got how do you define energy as it relates to the lived experience that we have today oh cool question i don't have an answer in a can so let's see <laughs> what comes out if you look at the mathematics of the universe, and don't get me wrong, I'm not going to be one of those people that quotes quantum theory. Uh, I, I was good at maths at high school, uh, and I did mechanical engineering at university, so I, I was capable of solving time-variant three-dimensional vector fields at one point in my life. That point in my life is long gone, and at this point, basic arithmetic is about yeah. my limit. <laughs> um, and so I don't want, wish to be the person who like falsely quotes experimental physics, particle physics, but it seems to be that energy and matter are the same thing. Like energy is what the universe is made out of. Uh, And when it condenses to slow vibrations like that um, quote, uh, it becomes matter. And obviously a lot of the time it's, it's light, heat, all the rest of it. In an experiential sense, I think of energy as, it, it is like the power source for everything that we do. And I think of it as um, something that is exchanged constantly between humans. I will often say when someone enters a room, I'll say, wow, that person's got a good energy about them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, depending on how you view the world, you might just say that they look friendly or you might say they have a nice aura. <laughs> like it depends how woo-woo you get. But do you know what I mean? There are people who can step into a room and something about the room changes. And the energy that is the the, the shared experience of being in that room is different because this particularly charismatic person walked in or because this particularly energetic person walked in. So I think of energy as maybe the most important currency that humans trade in, but almost all of us do it completely intuitively and subconsciously. And so when I think about how is, so for example, uh, how is your business going to grow? I know that your business will grow if marketing it gives you more energy. I know your business will grow if selling it gives you more energy. I know it will grow if delivering your value gives you more energy. So there's a transaction at play between you and the rest of the universe about when you do these things, are you rewarded with energy or not? Equally, there's an energy transaction for the people who you interact with as well. And so your potential clients are out there in the world and they've never heard of you yet. And the first time you show up in their TikTok or their Twitter feed or their their, their LinkedIn feed or whatever, if that experience gives them a little bit of energy, so you make them laugh or you give them a good idea, but there's something about that tiny first interaction that gives them a little bit of energy, then there's much higher probability that there will be a second interaction and a third. And if 
through marketing and nurturing that potential client, they are constantly receiving energy from you, then I think that that relationship is gonna to continue to grow. And so my favorite thing is when someone learns how to sell their services in a way that is energizing both for the person doing the selling and the person being sold to, whether or not there's a sale at the end of it. Like imagine if you could have a sales conversation with a potential client and they end up saying no at the end of it and yet both of you feel energized by that exchange. Mm -hmm. You're both gonna succeed, do you know what I mean? And so energy is this currency that we're trading back and forth. There's an unlimited amount of it, but that doesn't mean we can access an unlimited amount of it. And so I think of energy as this obviously completely intangible, indefinable, unquantifiable thing, <laughs> which the goal in life is to collect as much of it as you possibly can, and then to give as much of it away as you possibly can because there's an unlimited amount of it. And I reckon the more you give away, the more you receive in kind. And so to me, my entire experience of life is, can I give as much energy to people as I possibly can? And my assumption is that if I do, they'll end up paying me money and you know all the other things I need to make my life work. The number one transaction that I wanna care about is the energy transaction. I don't know if that's a definition, but does that give you a better sense of how I think about the whole thing? I the thing that stuck out stuck out to me the most was quantifying energy as the most important currency that we have because it reminded me of the question you posed me earlier, which is if 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 I it would have boiled down to as um, enough energy or enough time, and the energy was yeah. far more important. So I, my position was, and I'm not sure it is now because that's sort of what the conversations are about, was that time was the most important currency, at least in the sense that everyone is given the same amount. And then it is yep. up to each individual to decide to determine the value of each hour as if you were to express each hour as a coin. So throughout the course of your day, you would see, well, this, these coins have been bronze coins. This one's silver. Ooh, that's a platinum coin. That was a really good hour. So I, I, I need to go back to the drawing board and decide that that's still how I feel or not, because it, it's in order to ascribe value to these coins there has to be energy for it now sometimes an hour can be a good hour and had nothing to do with me right other people's energy can can improve the hour too but for the the purpose of the that analogy in the first place was to remind people that the power is in your hands then that power is yeah. well, power right not uh, yeah, I, I love. So I've never had the idea of like a silver coin, a gold coin, a platinum coin yeah. as a as as tokens of these currencies. But I, that really resonates with me. And I'll give you an example. So I'm really enthusiastic about public speaking. Uh, Warren Buffett, you know, world's greatest investor, is famous for having saying, uh, "You can double your value in any field by just being good at public speaking." Right? Because it doesn't matter how good your ideas are if they can't be communicated, um, they're not going to go far. Uh, so I've written a book about public speaking. I've spent the last 10 years kind of pursuing mastery of public speaking, not claiming to have got there, but I'm getting better. If you give a good public speaker the right audience, and when I say a good public speaker, I don't mean someone who uh, is particularly eloquent. I don't mean someone who is, is uh, word perfect in their, in their enunciation or anything else. A good public speaker for me is a person who can step on the stage and give everyone in the audience energy. You can mince your words, fluff your slides, make all sorts of mistakes, but if you're giving energy out while you're doing it, I think you're a great public speaker. 
one hour or even 30 minutes at the front of the right audience can be the most valuable hour in your year. You can create a sales pipeline that will deliver you 12 months worth of revenue that you can only dream about by giving a good energy speech to the right audience at the right time. And so in terms of the currencies, energy in that moment is by far the most important one. And you could give me a thousand coins worth an hour each, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't trade it for that one platinum coin of that one hour of me or whoever giving energy to the audience, because that energy exchange, that transaction, I reckon it, that's the platinum coin. And it is true that time is worth something. And it is true that money is worth something. And it is true that like everything has value and there are exchange rates for all of them. And at the end of the day, from where I'm sitting, it seems to me that energy is the most valuable of all coins. And so I think the big mistake that lots of people make is that in trying to earn coins of money, they exchange too much energy for those coins and it mm. ends up becoming a transaction that's not sustainable. And that's where they end up burnt out, broken and the rest of it. Energy is the most important coin and we should exchange others like time and money and everything else in the right values. And I think success is a case of experimenting until you find what works for you. You know, I, I noticed that the discontent that came from um, energy in relation to money wasn't in the earning of it, but it was in the, the spending of it in relation to the energy that I had spent to get it. So an example of mm -hmm. this is um, I, I, I take the, the missus out for, for dinner. Um, it was a lovely meal. Um, Kelsey's does a very good job. I don't know if you have Kelsey's in Australia, but it was a good restaurant. But <laughs> we, we both ordered a round of drinks and between the meals, it was all and then a tip uh, about $90 Canadian, which is like $70 US. Um, now, yeah. that's the, now I'm like, I thought, man, that would be a lot of hours worth of work if I was doing a minimum wage. I would be pretty frustrated. I would feel reluctant to even go and do it versus being able to earn that kind of money in like 20 minutes it would completely change the ability to really appreciate and enjoy what we're doing. You would think like, well, you know, we, 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 spent, we work so hard on, on this to enjoy this nice meal. You would think the energy would be amplified because of how precious it is. But really, it just it, it discourages people from working rather than uh, it motivates people to do it. So I think that's where that's where the, the disconnect between energy and time and money uh, really came to a head for me. Yeah, totally. And like money is an intermediate currency, I think, in the sense that money in and of itself is worth anything. Uh, money is only worth something when you exchange it. Uh, and mm -hmm. so like what I think you're discovering there is you were never actually paying money for the meal. You were paying time and energy for the meal. And the way the maths worked out in your case was that was a, a, a very um, fruitful exchange. Do you know what I mean? The restaurant was happy to take the amount that you paid for their, their effort in time and energy to create that meal and, and create that experience for you and your wife. And you were happy with the exchange in the sense that the amount of time and energy it took you in coaching businesses around their uh, digital interactions or whatever. And so that was a fruitful exchange. But as you say, if someone was working minimum wage, uh, the checkout at a supermarket or something like that, that $90 meal may not have felt like a fair exchange of their energy and time mm -hmm to create that potential for that experience. And so I think one of the great, so don't get me wrong, 
I understand the benefits of capitalism, like the fact as a distributed decision making system, nothing has ever gone close Mm -hmm. in terms of matching its effectiveness at kind of resource allocation. I get that. And because money is so easy to quantify and measure compared to all the other currencies that actually matter to us, we end up overvaluing the money itself. The money's not worth anything. It's only a medium of exchange. And I see so many people make bad, what I consider to be bad choices around their time or their energy or their relationships or anything else, their quality of life to make this money number go up because the money number is the only one you can actually look at. Mm-hmm. There's no like counter on your arm like that um, dystopian future futuristic oh, um, like, sci-fi yeah, I movie. I see clips of that. Uh, yeah, like out of time or something like that. I think it was... Would, yeah. Am I, am I, I can't believe I'm pulling this name, but Justin Timberlake, was was that the guy on I it? think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like if we were living in a dystopian future where you had a timer on your arm, I think suddenly our relationship in terms of the exchange rates between money and time would dramatically change. And suddenly we would value time more highly compared to money. And I think the same is true of energy. There isn't some counter that you can see in your, you know, your Google glass goggles or whatever that tells you how much energy you've got and what the activity you're currently doing or the, the, the work you're currently doing is costing you in terms of energy. And it, it's only the fact that money is so easily quantifiable, so easy to compare to others that we end up overvaluing it as a measure of success and um, and therefore underutilizing it for what it's actually supposed to be doing, which is just a medium of exchange. Um, and so don't get me wrong, I love making money and I absolutely want to make sure I have an abundance of it, but at some point it's worth nothing. Uh, and so for me, that number is about half a million dollars a year. You offer me a job I can make 10 million a year, I, I don't know why I'd want it. I don't know how to spend more than what I'm making now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, the, the missus and I, we just watched uh, South Park's new special called uh, Into the Panderverse. And it's, it's, a, right. it's, them, it's them ripping on, on Disney, but there was a B-plot to it where all of the white-collar workers around town were noticing that like their TVs weren't working, their sinks needed unclogging. Uh, and then Randy, his, the, the, the door to his oven, the hinge wasn't working. And the, those like, those physical skills had become so scarce that all the handyman in town had become the new 1%. And so it was all <laughs> the white collar workers you would think were making all the money are like, you so they, they, they bring a catapult to a college to try to get back at college because college took all their money. And then they had to call the handyman to come in and build the catapult. Like South Park is just like, they've never not been on their game. And I mean, like humor is always uh, like the leading edge reflection of real life, right? But I look around, I'm university educated. I got a a whole bunch of friends, like the majority of my friends also university educated. But there is absolutely a class of tradesmen, basically, who are doing a lot better than the majority of university educated people I know. And they are just really good at landscape gardening or really good at plumbing. Uh, And the key thing I would say to hark back to one of my original points was they also take commercial responsibility for their business, Mm -hmm. the ones that are successful. But there are plenty of people in the trades right around where I live here who are making two or three hundred thousand dollars a year using their hands. And uh, and yeah, there's a lot to be said for it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did chamber asking you more about the solopreneur. And what I what I wanted to uh, understand about this was there there's the i guess the symbolic 
I'm not some limitation, but maybe like the symbolic line that you might not want to, um, that if you were to cross, you would no longer be a solopreneur. So what I mean by that is, what, uh, yes, you have your, your customers to serve, but I expect that there is some element of like other professionals are helping you in some way in order to conduct your business. So both symbolically and contractually, what are yeah. the, what's the, the, the barrier of being a solopreneur? Yeah, great question. Um, so like by one definition, I'm absolutely not a solopreneur because I have a full-time assistant. His only job is to do things that I ask him to do. I benefit from geo arbitrage in that sense. So he lives in the Philippines. Uh, and so he's a, he's a full-time assistant of mine. And um, because I live in Australia and he lives in the Philippines, the expense to me is relatively low. But you could argue I'm already not a solopreneur because I have a full-time assistant and there's two people in the business mm. kind of <laughs> definitionally is not there. And so like I think there's an interesting insight that you can have philosophically where you realize everything is a spectrum. Do you know what I mean? So like there's the, Australia has one level of gun control and Canada has another level of gun control and America has another level of gun control. But to say that America doesn't have gun control at all is clearly false because you can't buy a grenade launcher or a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. And so there's just gun control isn't a line to be drawn. It's a spectrum to find yourself on. And uh, to go even weirder about it, even the difference between you as a human being and the rest of the universe is actually, the barriers actually kind of fuzzy. If you had an electron microscope that could zoom in on the edge of your fingertip, there's a point there where you zoom in close enough where it's not exactly clear which bit is Joseph and which mm. bit is the air around you. Do you know what I mean? There's skin molecules are flaking off the barrier. The boundary is actually murky. And the barrier and the boundary between being a solopreneur and not is murky. Um, so for me, a useful definition is if you you know, were incapacitated in some way, could your business deliver any value? And if the answer is no, then you're a solopreneur. So Gino, my assistant, works full-time for me in the business that is kind of colfink.com. But if I disappeared, he's not gonna be creating any value to our clients. His job is to assist me because I am the business. Mm -hmm. And what I find quite interesting about being a solopreneur is that it means that almost all of the stereotypical business advice is actually bad advice for you. So uh, like Michael Gerber in the E-Myth, I'm pretty sure is where the idea first came around. He said that you should work on your business, not in your business. Now, if you're a solopreneur and you only worked on your business and not in your business, by definition, you're not making any money. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so my goal as a solopreneur is to ignore that so-called profound piece of business advice as much as I possibly can. I want to work in my business as much as possible because if I'm not working in it, I'm not making any money. Now, do I turn to other people? Absolutely. You know, like I use my brother to do a bunch of um, videography type stuff. I use my other brother to do all my graphic design. I lean on people here, there and everywhere, depending on what skills I happen to have. So. Uh, my wife does all my editing. She's a professional book editor. And to, yeah, so a solopreneur is not a person kind of in a vacuum <laughs> mm -hmm. doing everything alone. To me, the useful part of it is it, it, it's simply the question, if you disappeared tomorrow, is it still a business? You know what I mean? And so if you're an entrepreneur, I would say there should be some period of time where if you, you know, fell ill or went on a holiday or disappeared for whatever reason, the structures are in place and the systems are in place and the employees or um, 
resources are in place that that business is going to continue to create value. Now, without the, without the CEO or the founder or whatever, maybe that will go down. With a solopreneurial business, the day you disappear, the business stops. You are the business. Is that, a, I don't know, is that useful? It is. Uh, but there, there is one um, follow-up to it that I'd like to uh, add into the mix. And uh, in, in in speaking very, I guess, uh, pra- pragmatic terms, because a, a lot of what I've talked about in the um, e-commerce space was that there are, say, digital products and there's uh, um, print-on-demand products. There, basically, there's things that you can do that once they're set, they, just, they sort of handle themselves. So the idea that if I were incapacitated, yeah. at least my my online catalog, my courses, my my print-on-demand T-shirts could at least still be running. So there is some element to the business that is still operating. Um, is that of? I haven't seen everything. I do try to check out as much as I can of a person's profile. But is um, yeah. having any continuity? in products or digital products um, a, a priority for you or is it important for you to retain that level of if if I stop, the work stops? So I'm not wedded to the idea that if I stop, the work stops. I just think mm-hmm. that it's useful to know when um, kind of default pieces of wisdom don't apply to you. So that's why a, a lot of solopreneurs, I think, make the mistake of trying to remove themselves as the most important cog of the business. And my philosophy is, well, no, what you should do is just lean on the fact that you're excellent at what you do, make as much money as you can from it, take that money out of your business and invest it elsewhere and try to make yourself financially free so you don't have to work at all rather than build this big business if building a big business doesn't kind of suit your natural tendencies as it doesn't suit mine. On the topic of kind of products that can be leveraged if you like. So there's online courses, there's books, there's various things, which absolutely, yeah, they can continue to be sold even if you're not, don't have the time or the energy to do anything in your business at that time. I love that stuff. And my primary complaint with them Mm -hmm. is that I tend to see most people trying to transition to that type of business, trying to add those types of products into their business too early And what it does is it distracts them from doing the work they could be doing, which would be creating the most value. And instead, they're locking themselves away trying to film some curriculum or write some book or create some whatever. And they're saying to themselves, well, this would be great because it means that I don't actually have to do the work to make the money. But they never actually reach the level where they're well positioned enough for those products to sell anyway. So, Mm -hmm. for example, I mentioned Adam Grant and Brene Brown. They're two names which if I'm just trying to pick the most well-positioned solopreneur I can think of, those two people, everyone's heard of them, right? Or at least one of them. Do you get that if Adam Grant was to make a, uh, a, a self-paced online course about leadership, he could sell 500,000 like, tickets to it. If Brene Brown made a self-paced online course about vulnerability, she could sell several million tickets to it. If you or I did that, we might not sell any because you and I aren't well known in the space of vulnerability or we aren't well known in the space of leadership, right? And so most solopreneurs in my experience who are attracted to the idea of having these products that can be sold um, and whose marginal cost is zero effectively, like online products, the wonderful thing is the, the unit marginal cost is zero. Two people order it, doesn't cost you any more to deliver it. But the problem is we're attracted to that too quickly and as a result, we're not actually well positioned enough. We're not well known enough among the market. We don't have a high enough profile for those products to actually be profitable. 
And so what I'm typically telling solopreneurs to do is can you please focus on whatever it is that you do that has the most value right now. So if you can sell a $5,000 or $10,000 coaching relationship with a person, do that rather than making a $500 online course. Because if you can sell a $5,000 or $10,000 coaching relationship and that leads to the kind of changes and the kind of impact that, that, that the person you're coaching was seeking, they will tell five friends about it, you will get another few coaching clients out of that. From there, you'll get more. From there, you'll get more. Yeah. Then you can go from a one-to-one -to, -one to a one-to-many model. And then you can start adding training. And then you can do this. And then you can do that. And by the time your email list is 10,000 or 100,000, or you've got 50,000 followers on Twitter or 500,000 followers on Twitter, now you can make an online course. Now you can try to be a number one bestseller. And now it might actually work. But don't get it out of sequence. Follow value first. It's the most common mistake I see is people trying to make online courses and they end up investing hundreds or even thousands of hours into producing them and they sell six. Right. Waste <laughs> of time. Waste of energy. Five if you don't count their parents. Like, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what I would like to do, and this is what I actually, I'm wanting to do this um, for the episode uh, as well, is look at the... Uh, the light sides to this, which is that sort of like that on ramp. And yep. now one mistake that I've, I've made in my, in my career is sometimes I can be a little over influenced. Like I've talked to, this might be episode like 25, right? So, you know, 50 coaches in, 60 coaches in, it was, it's hard to not like want to be a coach. And then a few more, talked to a few more people and thought, okay, you know what, no, what am I doing? It's uh, there's, there's only so many lanes and, and I I'm in my lane. I, I like it. So let's keep going with that. So, yeah. and then, then same thing happened with the e-commerce space as well. Um, so, you know, my, my partner and I, who's a, she's a talented illustrator now how to animate. So we sort of like took the, what we learned in e-commerce and applied it to print on demand. So we found a niche that, that works for us. So that's all well and good. But with public speaking, which is a, comes up quite a bit on the program, this is something that I actually have done since I was a kid and I was a natural yeah. at it. So for me, public speaking is something that I am not currently doing that I should be doing and that I would love to do. So now I'm in Canada. Um, you're, you're, you're in Australia. So although we both hail to the queen, there are definitely some differences between how our, <laughs> our nations work, but I don't think we really do, but yeah, we, we both equally we defer do. to, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is to say very, very little. Um, what would be some recommendations that somebody can do to just get up on stage and start public speaking? And, and we're not worried about making money at this point. We just want to get up on stage and, and start, um, um, earning our hours. Yeah. So, number one, I think you've already said the most important piece of advice, which is don't worry about money at this yeah. point. Uh, one of the mistakes that we make with public speaking is when we try to monetize it, we try to monetize it too cheaply. And so uh, for people who are organizing an event, there's this interesting tension between price and cost. Uh, and so the numbers will be slightly different depending on which uh, economic market you're in. And I'll talk in Australian dollars because that's the one I'm most familiar with. But if you cost less than $5,000 as a speaker in Australia, you're a risk and no one will book you. <laughs> and do you get that it's actually better to be free mm -hmm. or to be a $5,000 product who's testing out a new speech and to offer it for free than you are to be. If you're a $1,000 speaker, you can't get booked because what you're saying is I'm an amateur and I'm mm -hmm. no good at this yet. And so nobody wants to put you on their stage. 
And so the interesting thing is that to get started in speaking, you've got to say it's not about the money, at least not now. I'm doing it for the opportunity to grow as a person. Um, one of the things I love about public speaking is I think it's one of the best vehicles for personal development that we have ever created. Because good public speaking is about being authentically you on stage. And being authentically you on stage takes a lot of personal growth for most of us. Uh, I know that the first version of me that started public speaking was like a weird cut out, cardboard cutout version mm -hmm. of Cole. It wasn't me that was speaking. It was like presenter voice guy who got up here to say these things. And now, finally, 15 years later, when I stand on stage, most of the time, I'm actually me. Um, what I reckon... I mean, I could talk about public speaking for 15 podcasts with you, Joseph, but uh, to start with, I reckon the big mistake that most people make when they start designing or like taking an opportunity to speak is whether we ask ourselves this, this question explicitly or implicitly, almost every speech that people give is an answer to the question, what am I going to say? that makes sense? So you're like, you go, oh, okay, I've got an opportunity. I'm going to speak to 50 people in the tech space. What am I going to say? And it instantly, what am I going to say? There's a clue in the pronoun usage right there in the sentence. You're, you're thinking about yourself. Mm -hmm. So you're looking mm -hmm. inwards. When public speaking, the whole key is to look outwards. The reason people turn into a weird version of themselves is because they've got this weird internal looking loop where like you know do i sound funny do i look funny am i standing weird do i sound weird we need to if we can start to turn off that that mental loop and instead go what is she understanding what's he thinking is this useful for her mm -hmm. and so the problem is if you ask yourself what am i going to say then you've like the very first step on the journey of designing and delivering a speech was in the wrong direction a piece of advice that I like to give people is when you're going to give a speech, the very first question you ask, and the speech should be designed to answer the question, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? You're going to go and speak to them. They're going to what? Listen? Okay. And then what? Do you want them to go away and try something? Do you mm -hmm. want them to look something up on the internet afterwards? Do you want them to launch an experiment in their lives? Do you like, what do you want them to do? And you get that if you approach an opportunity to speak to people as an opportunity to invite them to do something, suddenly your speech takes on a totally different character and suddenly your speech is given with them in mind rather than with you in mind. Because there's a weird irony that when you are the person on, on stage, you are both the most important person in the room and the least important person in the room. You're the most important person in the room because you're the one talking, everyone's eyes are on you, hopefully. Mm. Uh, everyone's listening to you, hopefully. So you're the most important person in the room, but you're also the least important person in the room because you're the only person in the room who is fully convinced by the ideas that are being shared. So your opinion doesn't matter. <laughs> the people in the audience are the those whose opinion actually matters. And so I know you're interested in growing your abilities as a public speaker and kind of adding that as a string to your bow. And I go, cool. Can you go and find an audience and, and catalyze them into doing something? Find an audience organized by whoever or create your own and then ask yourself, what do I want them to do? 
and design a speech that is, the whole point of it is to invite them to do something, to get them to take action. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the, that is stepping, making the first step on the journey towards mastery of speaking in the right direction, rather than saying, what am I gonna say? Which I think is in the wrong direction. Straight up, that is definitely something I've never heard before. So it, uh, but it, I mean, it, it makes total sense. And it, 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 it ties into, the themes of serve, just providing service for others, which has always been yeah. a guiding light for me. Okay, maybe not always, but it's been a guiding light for me for a long time. Whenever I'm just trying to make sense of like how the universe works, and I try to distill it down to what's something fundamentally true that I can rely on to be my guiding light, which is, can you be of service to others? How and totally and and the idea that because I think what what a lot of people might stereotypically think about in relation to a speech is that a speech is just you're going to hear someone talk and it's unless you're specifically seeing a motivational speaker who's like by, by definition intended to motivate you, you don't expect a speech to be motivating, but really, I mean, I guess what, what we're trying to get at here is that speeches by their very design are motivational and that someone goes in and by the end of it should be catalyzed to take action in some way. I want to, can I answer the question in a second, completely different way? When you get an opportunity to speak, one of the things that holds us back, I think, is um, concern that we are good enough for the audience or that we have the credentials that the audience should listen to us or anything else. And anytime those fears and anxieties arise, we create the problem of they turn into the cardboard cutout version of ourselves, right? Where we're trying to put on a veneer of professionalism or experience or whatever it else, because we have some internal fear that we're not good enough for the audience or anything else. I have a belief and maybe it's one I made up because it's useful or maybe it's one that I believe because it's totally true. I kind of don't care which. Mm -hmm. I have a belief that everybody has something to teach every audience. So even if you're in a room full of octogenarian CEOs and you're a 15 year old school kid, I genuinely believe that there is a lesson you can teach to those people. And the way to do that is not to pretend to be more like them. The way to do that is to embrace exactly what it is to be like you, okay? So Joseph, you and I don't know each other well, but you, the way you started speaking before about writing your novel, you mentioned a couple of things which I would never have even thought about when it came to writing a novel. You talked about, like I think you were talking about bringing in your experiences from gaming to help Mm -hmm. set up combat scenes that were interesting. Mm -hmm. And like the moment you said that, I was like, oh wow. Like I immediately started wondering, how would you do that? What would happen? Like, I wonder if there's a lesson in that for me, right? Now, being someone who enjoys playing computer games and writes uh, fiction novels may not sound like the life experience of a person who should be stereotypically expected to be sharing some piece of wisdom to us on a commercial stage at some kind of conference. But I actually think you should. Mm -hmm. And I like, if that is the thing that truly lights you up, if that is the thing that you deeply understand better than anything else, then I actually want to hear all about that because almost every lesson in life, can be abstracted out of the specifics of where and when it happened and recontextualized and used elsewhere. 
the, the place most of us get experience with this is either with our hobbies or playing sport. So you will go and play basketball with your friends and you'll have some, you know, there'll be some conflict or whatever, something to resolve, there's teamwork, you learn something from it and then you go back to work or some other environment and you abstract the lesson from basketball, you recontextualize it, you apply it in a new context and suddenly you've grown as a person and you become more effective. The basketballer doesn't have to pretend to be an expert in the new field in order to teach the lesson. And so you have, among many others I'm sure, but you have this deep understanding of the mechanics of games and how they work. And it sounds to me like you're not just a person who played games because they're fun, but you actually played games and you were looking, like you were looking at what was really going on. Mm -hmm. And additionally, you're apparently quite a talented fiction writer and you understand quite a lot about that. And I would say that in the intersection between a gamer and a fiction writer, there's a whole host of lessons and insights that can be abstracted, transported and recontextualized and applied in new contexts in ways that create loads and loads of value. And so you could go and speak to financial planners or insurance brokers or Wall Street traders or scientists and speak with authority about the things that you are an expert in and offer them opportunities to take those lessons and apply them in new contexts and create value with them. And you never have to be pretend someone that you're not. You never have to fake credentials that you don't have. You, do you know what I mean? You don't have to show up as a cardboard cutout version of yourself so you can be professional. The most interesting speakers are like the most interesting comedians. They're weird and wacky and different. And that means we're sick of seeing the same boring, you know, consulting firm <laughs> representative <laughs> up on stage. We don't want that anymore. We want interesting, real people. Like if you've seen Tim Urban, the waitbutwhy.com, his TED talk, he's clearly got ADD and like <laughs> a bunch of other neuroatypicalities. And yet he's the most interesting guy in the room. Well, just speaking of comedians briefly, that's why... Bill Burr is um, uh, world renowned is because he, in addition to being a world class talent, uh, he represents an avatar of of people who don't feel like they get to speak out. And he's sort of and it's the same thing with South Park. These represent um, air, air, thought processes of a lot of people who don't have anyone, or they themselves don't feel brave enough or compelled enough to uh, speak out in the way that these shows and these performers do. So, you, the comedians are, are are a brilliant way to represent in different pockets of society. So, when you you get you, you niche down into some of the more like well, localized acts who have a small cult following, they still represent uh, a, a form of people who could be all over the world and and we yeah. live in a time now where it's where those audiences can find those performers and 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 feel a sense of um, validation and that no matter how weird and wacky we are that someone is it on stage being our avatar absolutely and what i think is really interesting is that statistically no one is the average person so like i am below average height and way below average weight and I'd like to think above average intelligence, but I'll let you decide. But like there are all these dimensions about which we, it, we all exist on a bell curve. We all exist on a million bell curves, right? And we're mm -hmm. really high on some things, we're really low on other things, and we're right in the middle on most things. But the interesting thing is nobody is right on the middle on everything. The, the actual average person doesn't exist. When we talk about average people, 
we're deluding ourselves as though average people exist and they don't. So I had a guy deliver some stuff to my house the other day in a really big truck. And when he got out of the truck, he looked exactly like a stereotypical truck driver. He had truck driver's tattoos, he had a truck driver's beard, he had a truck driver's jacket. And it was easy for me to build a mental image of this man as an average truck driver. And then I have no idea how we got to this point in the conversation. It turned out he was desperately into astrophotography. And this guy had a telescope in his backyard with a $15,000 camera with a sensor that was cooled by liquid nitrogen <laughs> so that he could take photos of nebula that are like several hundred million light years away. Never in a million years would I have guessed that about this dude because he looked like he was a thing. And my point is not that he was a particularly unusual truck driver. My point is every truck driver is like that. There are ways in which they're exactly like all other track drivers, but there are some dimensions in which they are truly weird and different. And that is true of everybody. Everybody has something weird and different about them. They've got a sexual kink or a particular interest or a weird sense of humor or a, a, a mental neuroatypicality or whatever. Like everybody's weird and bizarre in some ways. And everybody's really, really average in many other ways. What we don't want to see on the stage is the average of everything. What we want to see on the stage is the bit of you that's really different. And so when a comedian gets on stage, if they are gay or trans or really short or really fat or really what it, like anything that makes them different than normal, that's the part of their act where they'll start. Mm -hmm. That's the part of their act where they'll create an anchor, something for us to see and relate to, because we actually love the differences in people. And there's an irony that when we first go to stand on stage, our first reaction, and it's one of fear, you're like, I get it, I empathize and, and I have compassion with it, but we try to hide those bits of ourselves that are weird because we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to be perceived to be weird, basically. And yet, that is the very thing that we need to emphasize in order to stand out. So when I get on stage, I prance around the joint, highly energetic, ridiculously enthusiastic, talk way too fast, don't pause often enough. There's all sorts of ways that my public speaking is not good. But the thing is that I'm being me and that's what people like. Um, and so I would love to be in the audience for your next speech. And I want to hear about how games and fiction writing intersect and what I can understand about setting scenes and creating narratives and building stories and creating compelling engagement. Like there's all sorts of lessons in that intersection which you could teach me so much about. And I have no idea what they are yet. And I want to see your speech that puts them all together and then you abstract those ideas and you give me uh, ways to recontextualize them into my own life and I can learn from you no matter who you are. Well, I, I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying. For me, the, the impetus is to demystify the bar for entry as to who is allowed to do what. So one yeah. of the things that I find somewhat frustrating and difficult about wanting to say become a movie maker or become a game maker or become a writer uh, for especially is the the community expects you to meet a certain threshold of material to have consumed. Now, I've, yeah. I've read some books like I, I read books, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've been absorbing material my whole life and I've just been born with a writer's brain. So I'm just I'm constantly doing it. And I'm pretty, and I'm pretty sure it's going to turn out all right. I mean, maybe not in the next Lord of the Rings, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be pretty good. <laughs> I find it frustrating that certain parts of uh, who I am and what I do would be looked down on 
in relation to how it informs my writing, like like with the gaming. So yeah. for me, the important part is to um, help people take whatever value they have um, put their time into and uh, use that as a unique way to approach something else rather than see it as a detriment. So how does a gamer write a book? How does some yeah. I, me, I, I, I game all the time. I love it. I'm never going to stop. Um, slowing down a little bit because my hands are hurting and I'm finding games that play themselves a little bit easier to play now these days. But thir- like I, I 20 years, 20 computer gaming yeah. would have a, a ceiling yeah. for uh, for age. But there you go. <laughs> That's the inspiration that uh, that I'm taking away from this. So I'm uh, I'm really thankful for it. Now that said, um, we are we, we do got to wrap this uh, podcast episode up. We've uh, we've hit our mark. I obviously I wasn't gonna like cut you off mid sentence or anything like that, but we do got to wrap this up. So. Um, the last thing that I just wanted to um, find out about what, what is going on with you is do you have any challenges or anything in your five-year outlook that you're trying to tackle? And it could be even on a technical level, like you're just you, – it's uh, social, maybe social media something that you're targeting, maybe your website ranking something you're targeting. Is there anything that um, perhaps any of the people who are listening could be of use to you? Uh, good question. Let me think. Um I got a million things that aren't perfect. <laughs> right. Uh, I got a website that is always lagging behind reality. Uh, I've got a social media that ranges from highly active to barren wasteland. Uh, what I'm working on right now is uh, finishing my next book, The Solo Pro, and then um, establishing the uh, a community around, like a community of practice around implementing the lessons that are in that book, and. Um, I'm going to get so many things wrong between now and the the completion of that book and then the establishment of the community and then what the community looks like in a year's time or three years time or five years time. And, um, and I guess the, the interesting thing is I'm really looking forward to all those mistakes that I'm going to make and all the lessons that I'm going to learn from it. Mm-hmm. And so I am completely open to every piece of feedback um, on any of the things that I do. Uh, and at the same time, all of it's an experiment and I'm just trying things out and the things that work will stick around and the things that fail don't. Uh, and so there isn't anything specific where I'm like, oh, I desperately need someone's help to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, and at the same time, if you have a, a, a learned eye and you're seeing anything that I'm doing and you've got ideas about how it could help, I'd love for you to suggest experiments that I could launch uh, and ways that I could try things out. And I will, I will, I will try nearly anything. Um, and if it works, I'll keep doing it. And if it doesn't, I'll learn from it and then try something new. Okay. Well, f- fantastic. Thank you for that. And and thank you again for uh, taking the time to be on this program. Um, you, you said earlier on that uh, this is something that you quite enjoy and it, and I and I for one was I'm really I'm I'm at the point where I'm just jumbling my words at this point because like uh, what else what after thank you there's really not much else else to say, but it it does mean a significant deal to me that you know even after three years and having talked to a great deal of people that there's no shortage of things that can change my mind that can facilitate growth so. I'm in a great place. I get to be here. I get to be the one to have this conversation and conduct it in a way that I see fit. And so thank you to my audience for participating and helping um, the show out in your own way. So Cole Fink, if you have any last um, words, thoughts, or anything else that's been floating in your mind as a result of this conversation, I welcome you to share it. And then otherwise, let the audience know where they can seek you out online. 
Sure. Uh, so my name is Cole Fink, C-O-L-F-I-N-K. That's unique enough that if you Google it, you'll find me on LinkedIn and Instagram and threads um, and anywhere else. Uh, and my advice would simply be people go and do something. Uh, <laughs> there's all these barriers, uh, these apparent barriers in our lives preventing us from doing things. And in my experience, when you really get down to it, almost all of them are psychological. And if you can just convince yourself to try things and give it a go, you have no idea what you're capable of doing. Uh, and if you have ever been flirting with the idea of launching a business where you are the business, feel free to shoot me a message on any of the platforms. Um, as you probably gathered from this podcast, I'm never afraid of giving advice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'd love to help you, uh, anyone out there, if if you feel like you need some guidance or even just a bit of encouragement. Um, and Joseph, thanks very much. You're obviously an expert podcaster. You've obviously done this a lot and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, I'm feeling very energized, which was, of course, one of my main reasons for being here in the first place. So thank you very much, mate, for uh, for hosting. And, um, and I certainly wish you all the best with everything, but especially your novel. And I do hope you'll add me to a mailing list to make sure that when it's finished, I get to uh, get to buy a copy. I will I will hold you to that because I mean aside from needing the sales I do want <laughs> I don't want this thing to, <laughs> to take off right so so I'll, I'll, I'll take up on that uh, all right everybody so this has been another episode of the impactful coaching podcast our role on this program is to help coaches meet other coaches so if anybody who's been on the program if you're a coach yourself and you want to meet anybody allow me to be your networker more than happy to do that and then for everybody else who's not in the space but is just looking for your daily dose of inspiration and action to take, happy to be able to facilitate that as well. And last but not least, our goal above all else is to make sure that in whatever way you are serving others, we want you to be impactful while you're at it.